In the words of Captain Shang from the movie Mulan, let's get down to business. We're in, the, we're in the final chapters of the Gospel of John. Last week, this week, and next week, we're focusing on what is Jesus' farewell prayer. In it, he prays for his three most important relationships. He prays for a restoration of his glory with the Father. He prays for his current disciples, and he prays for his future disciples. In other words, he's, he's praying for all of those who are in union with him. But it's also in these verses that we're going to hear today, verses 6 to 19, that we get a very well-known kind of Christian idea and phrase, in but not of the world. It's a phrase that you've probably heard a lot from a lot of different people with a lot of different meanings. But today we're going to talk about which of those meanings actually matches up with a life that's faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and faithful to the kingdom of God. We're going to find that to be in but not of the world amounts to this. There was a wonderful, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. He was thinking about Mosaic, and he referred to Mosaic as an insurgent church. I am going to run with that. We are a church of insurgents, a church of revolutionaries, a church of rebels against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, and against the principalities. And, I'm gonna, and, I, and I want us to start, we'll, we'll talk about what that meant for the disciples, and then we'll talk about what that means for us. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word, John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. I have revealed to you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is, oh, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So in verses 6 to 8, Jesus is laying out the distinctions between his disciples and the world. 
And so in verse 6, we get, this, we get this general frame, that God the Father has given God the Son a people out of the world. And here, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, we've got to think about what the world means. Is Jesus, is Jesus just talking about everybody in the world? Or is he talking about the evil order of rebellion that we're enslaved to when we're apart, of, when we're apart from Christ? Well, only context is going to tell us that, so we're going to have to read on to find that out. So what is it that sets these people apart? Jesus says this in, in verse 6. They were yours, you gave them to me, and, and they have obeyed your word. So already we've got this close tie between belonging to the Lord and obeying his word. Something very important to keep in mind. Verses 7 to 8 drive that home. Jesus says, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, it's interesting for Jesus to pray this to the Father, because if you've been paying attention throughout the book of John, and really throughout the Gospels as a whole, this, this is kind of weird for Jesus to say. Because if this was all that you knew about the disciples, then you would probably think that these guys actually knew who Jesus was and were tireless supporters with him through thick and thin and consistent in their knowledge and love of him. But each of the Gospels is actually pretty clear about a different point, that the disciples don't really understand what Jesus is saying throughout his entire ministry. And yet, even with that ignorance, even with that, that fickleness, that kind of going back and forth, including the fact that they're about to leave Jesus relatively alone to die, Jesus still holds up their even weak faith and prays for their strength. And I hope this is a comfort for you when you struggle with doubt something that most of us are going to deal with over the course of the Christian life. If the Lord graciously accepted the little faith of the disciples, he will graciously accept and strengthen yours as well. But in verses 9 and 10, Jesus starts to get a little more explicit. He says this in verse 9, I pray for them, the disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, this helps us understand what Jesus is talking about when he refers to the world in this passage. He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for what it, what, what's often called the elect, the chosen ones. Now, when I use that language of election, the chosen ones, there's some among us who get nervous when we hear, when we hear those words. Some of us might come from circles where this language is used primarily to exclude folks or perhaps to make you anxious. You may come from circles where this language of election and being chosen by God makes it, people, people think, oh, I was chosen by God because I'm awesome. Those are, quite frankly, unbiblical and spiritually harmful ways of framing God's choosing. There are two things we need to know about the way that God chooses. We need to know the fact of it, and we need, and we, and we need to know his purpose in it. Here's the thing. The scriptures don't allow us to escape the fact, the very simple fact that in an ultimate sense, we don't choose the Lord. The Lord chooses us. Because apart from Christ, we are enslaved to the world. This is constant language throughout the scriptures. When I say world here, what I, I'm, I'm talking about it in the terms that John talks about it and in the way that it's often talked about throughout the New Testament, that the world is hostile to God and enslaved to the powers of darkness. Scriptures will use language saying, like, the world is controlled by the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2.2. It's a world that's under the domination of the elemental spirits, according to Galatians and Colossians. It's a world that's under the power of the powers and the principalities. What do I mean? 
And I want you to raise your hand when I ask this question. How many of you this week have thought about demons? That is fascinating. Raise your hands high. It's okay. You raise it. Okay. All right. Now, brothers and sisters, if our view of existence is to match up with the scriptures, we have to remember that every day we're in the midst of not just personal and social struggles, but a cosmic one. The temptation to dominate and to exploit one another, it, it rises from within, but it doesn't exclusively rise from within. It also assaults us from, from outside through demonic influence. Spiritual warfare is real. And when Jesus is talking about the world, what he's talking about, he's talking about a world that's under the power of a cosmic oppressor. The scriptures don't frame us apart from Christ as just kind of free people, just floating through life thinking, oh, I've got the Lord on this hand and the devil on the other. No, when Paul speaks to believers in Galatians 4, 8 to 9, he says it this way. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says this. He, he tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The issue is not merely that we are, apart from Christ, deceived. The issue is that we're blind. And we need the Lord to open our eyes. We need the Lord to set us free and to show us what life can really be which makes the gospel and, and Christ's work all the more important because Jesus is the great liberator, the one who plucks his people out of the hands of evil and proclaims his own kingship. If you've, if, if you've seen the movie Captain, Phillip, Captain Phillips, he's, he's, he's the Somali pirate who boards Tom Hanks' ship and says, look at me, I'm the captain now. This is the kind of language that Jesus is repeating through his prayer when he talks about who the Father gave him and who belongs to him. It's the people that he's plucked out for his own purpose. That's the fact of his choosing. But the, but the, but the real issue is, well, why? How? What's the purpose of his choosing? Well, what does Jesus want for his disciples? Let's take a look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer because he's about to die. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now those verbs that, that Jesus uses to, to describe his action, that he protected them and kept them safe, sometimes that, like, that, could be a little mis that, could, that can be a little misleading when we see it. We could be mistaken to think that what Jesus is saying is that his disciples will never come to any harm because of his protection. But Jesus' actions here are twofold. He keeps where the opposite of keeping is to lose, and he guards the opposite of guard is neglect. So let me, say it, let me say it this way. This is a promise of presence and of preservation. That is that God is saying that, that, that this is what Christ is saying, that, that the Lord will be with his people and he will not let them perish. Let me take it down another level. It's not so much a promise of safety as it is a promise of security. 
And I pressed this a few weeks ago because this is something that Jesus presses, and he repeats himself a lot in the Gospel of John. But he, but he repeats himself to show us what's really, really important for us to know. And it's really, really important for us to know that in Christ, God has promised to be with you and to not let you be lost. Judas is an example of the fact that proximity to salvation, you being close to salvation, doesn't guarantee salvation. He walked around with Jesus, walked around with Jesus to the same extent that the, that the, that the rest of the 12 did. And yet Jesus is referring to him here as the one doomed to destruction. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he, he, would, he, would, he would subtly hint that one of you, one of, this, one of this 12, is going to fall away. But here's the thing. We've still got to answer this question about this second part of thinking about God's choosing. Fact of it, purpose of it. And verses 13 to 19 are all about that purpose. In verse 13, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's saying these things for the joy of the disciples, and he says them for their joy at that time. It's like, this is not, I want them to have this joy in the future, I want them to have this joy now. And in verses 14 to 19, he unpacks this even more, and, he, and it's, it's interesting because like, he uses these verses, and he basically like, says the same thing four or five times. So I want you, to, want you to hear it. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now this is, this is, this is, this is, packed, this is packed tight, so I want us to unravel it before we apply it. Jesus gives his disciples his word. They accept it. And as a result, the world out of which they are called now sees them as threats to it. And they only tasted this reality when they were with Jesus, because the persecution was focused mainly on Jesus, not directly at them. See, Jesus is like the, Jesus is like the anti-empire figurehead, the shiny enemy that the powers of the world focused on. But he knew that he was about to go. I want you to think about it this way. Think, think, think of it like, like we're in a wartime situation and you're, and you're following your squad leader into, into battle and he's wearing, obviously against protocol, like really brightly colored fatigues. Like oranges and reds and blues, just like bright, bright colors. Things that, things that really make him stand out to the enemy. And also make it very clear like, hey, I'm the leader. I'm the most important person in this, in this group. This is essentially how Jesus' ministry appeared to the world. And it killed him for it. And after Jesus would be cut down, the world would refocus its attention on the foot soldiers, on the disciples. And Jesus, knowing that this would be the case, is praying for those moments. And his, and his prayer is not, Father, don't let them face the wrath of the worldly powers. No, instead his prayer is, Father, preserve them. Keep them out of the clutches of the evil one. If you remember, if you remember what he, what, what he said at the end of the previous chapter of, of John 16, in verse, in verse 33, he says, in this world you will have trouble. Will. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In verses 16 to 19, he's basically saying, keep them in the world, but don't ever let them again be of the world. And that's what this language of sanctification is about. 
And I know that when we think about sanctification, we often think in, in moral terms. Like if I were to ask you, hey, how's your sanctification going? I would never phrase it like that. But hey, how's your sanctification going? Um, you, you might say something like, well, you know, I used to be this, this very, I, I was envious, prideful, lustful, all these things. And the Holy Spirit is working that, is working that out of me. But, but that gets weird when you get to a verse like verse 19 where Jesus says, for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Isn't Jesus morally perfect? Is there some kind of like repentance that Jesus needed to engage in to be less sinful? No. The word sanctify, as its second meaning, means to be morally, basically means to make, to make morally perfect. Its first, its first meaning, and the way that it often shows up in Scripture, means to be set apart for holy use. Let me explain that. Think of it this way. Let's say, hypothetically, I have a delicious gallon of sweet tea. It's like water to me. Just, just courses through my veins. And, I, and let's say I want to drink some. So I need a cup for that task, right? So I, reach into, so I reach into the cabinet, choose one such cup. Now, in choosing this particular cup, I am setting this cup apart for the holy task of drinking sweet tea. Now, there are other cups in there for other purposes. One might be a cup that I normally put bacon grease in. One might, be a, one, one might be one that I drink water out of. There are other reasons to use cups. But this one, this one is for sweet tea. This one has been set apart for this purpose, which is literally what the word sanctify means. But I have done that purely by choosing it out of the cupboard and saying, this is my cup for sweet tea. Now, that's not all that's necessary for this process. Because for a cup to work for that purpose, it's, I would like it to be clean. If it was a bacon grease cup, and it wanted to make the move to being a sweet tea cup, it would take some cleaning up to get there, right? I, I, I would think, yeah. So also with the work of sanctification. Now, I want to clarify something here. The, the, the place where this metaphor falls apart is that the triune God is very, very happy to drink sweet tea out of cups that are in the process of being cleaned. So you don't have to be perfect to be set aside for God's purposes and to be used mightily for his purposes. But Jesus, from his birth and from eternity past, has always been set apart. He's always been set apart for a particular purpose, a particular purpose that only he could fulfill only a God-man could die for people and have that actually mean something. Only a God-man could walk around and not only forgive sins, but also heal a man who had been blind from birth. Only a God-man could do the kinds of things that Jesus has been called to do. And as he looked forward toward his death, in his prayer, he's recommitting himself to that task. And in this recommitment, he's thinking about his disciples. And he's sending them into the world as apostles. The word, word disciple is someone who's being taught. The word apostle is someone who has been sent. And so he sends them into hostile territory to be a people who were always in the world, but never of it. To preach the gospel and to be heralds of the priorities of the kingdom of God in the midst of the Roman Empire and in the midst of the powers and principalities that would array their weapons against them. But if that's what Jesus meant for himself and for his disciples, what does that mean for us? After all, we're not first century disciples or apostles. So what is, does, does this apply to us? 
What does it mean for us to be in the world but not of it? And I want to I dig into this a little bit because it's a big nebulous thing in the minds of many, and I want to bring it home. So I indicated at the beginning that we're to be a church of insurgents, of nonviolent revolutionaries, of rebels. And I, and I do really mean that. The, the priorities of the kingdom of God are not the priorities of the kingdoms of the world. And we have a responsibility to bear witness to these priorities in the world. But let's clarify that because there are ways that that can be taken in the wrong way. This mentality is weaponized by a number of folks. For example, Christian nationalism will take this and run with it, assuming that bear witness to the priorities of the kingdom of God means create structures, enact laws, and use the power of the state to enforce Christian values. This is an example of being in the world and of the world. When we claim the priorities of the Lord but don't trust the resources of the Lord and run to other sources, the scriptures call that idolatry. Great biblical example. And this is a story that's it, it, it's, it's stuck in my mind for especially the last few years. And it's 1 Samuel 8. When the elders of Israel come to the prophet Samuel and they ask him to appoint them a king just like everybody else. And that makes Samuel upset. But God is even more upset because, because the people of God were supposed to have God as their king. And so he told Samuel to warn the people about how their king would dominate and exploit them. And they still wanted a king. So God gave them one. And what did the kings do? The kings dominated, for the most part, dominated and exploited the people. God allowed his people to see what it meant to be both in and of the world. And this is what we confessed earlier. It's one of the reasons I love the, the, uh, uh, the Lausanne Covenant. The, the temptation to be conformed to the world, a temptation that we face daily. Every day that we're tempted to ignore the word, to ignore the ways that God has called us to love our neighbors, especially the poor and the oppressed, especially when it's difficult. You, when, when, when we're tempted in, the, in those ways, what we're tempted is to be both in the world and of it. Now, on the other hand, you may be tempted to withdraw. This is, this, is something that, this, is, this, is, this is something that I've struggled with, where you may, you may be tempted to see Sunday as your day to be a Christian, and then the rest of the week is hermetically sealed from worship. You may think, well, well, the world's just going to hell anyway. Why even try? The kingdoms of the world are too strong. I'm just going to lay low. That is as much an abdication of the mission of the gospel as conformity is. The Lord has called us out of the world, in order to be sent into the world. That is the second part of the election puzzle, and that has, been, that has always been the way that God has operated. Even when you got the people of Israel, when they're, when, they're, when they're about to go into Canaan, in the book of Deuteronomy, God is very clear with his people. I didn't choose you because you're awesome. You're actually small and stiff-necked and, like, not that great. I chose you because I love you, and you're, to be, and, you're, and you're to be instruments of my justice and of my peace in the world that I created. Similarly here, when, 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 when the Lord is speaking to his disciples, what he's, what he's saying is, I chose you in order to send you into the world. Rene Padilla says it this way, it is only in the extent to which we are free from this world that we are able to serve our fellow men and women. We can only, the only way that we can truly love one another is if we recognize that we have been called out of the world in order to be sent back into it. So we know what we don't want to be. We don't, don't want to be Christian nationalists, but we also don't want to be a cult that hides in the woods and prays for the destruction of the world. 
Neither of those commitments are faithful to the kingdom. So what is? What does it mean for us to be a church of insurgents? Gustavo Gutierrez has said it this way. The church's task is to serve, not to survive. The rest will be added to it. So this isn't about strategic growth. It's not about maintaining our good name. It's about being faithful to the kingdom of God and the promises and the priorities therein, the deep love of our neighbors. So I want to give us a few examples, all of which are controversial. Um, <laughs> sexuality, economy, and family. Sexuality. We find ourselves in a world that tells us that sexual expression and fulfillment are integral to human flourishing. Sometimes people will say it, like we'll say that out loud. Often it'll just kind of linger under the surface. But we as the body of Christ are, me are actually meant to resist that assumption. And there are a few ways that we do that. Part of it is our sexual ethics, something that the church has always been weird for. To say that sex is reserved for marriage, to say that that marriage is only between two people, and to say, that's e say that even more controversially that it's between a man and a woman, it's in every century from the beginning of the faith has been a struggle. But what actually undercuts this, this assumption that I talked about earlier is actually how we care for, love, and support single folks in our midst and folks called the celibacy. Because sexual expression and fulfillment, I want you to hear me here, sexual expression and fulfillment can't be integral to human flourishing because if they were, Jesus would be insufficiently human. And I'm not ready to say that. I mean, somebody might be ready to, I'm not, I'm not ready to say that. But brothers and sisters, our sexual minority brothers and sisters often flee church communities because they, can't, because because, because they don't feel like there's a, there's a place for them where they're actually loved and supported. And brothers and sisters, I pray that that might never be the case at Mosaic. We still have ways to grow. And as a, and a, and as a community, if you have suggestions of ways that we can love better in this outpost of the kingdom, I want you to know that, we are, that we're listening. Because an insurgent church in this space bears witness to the world that its sexual ethic is not a burden, but a gift. What about economics? I've spoken about this before. In a, in a profit-driven economy, in, a, in, an, in an economy that, quite frankly, doesn't care about you if you're not producing in the way that it wants you to, if, in, a, in a culture that encourages you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps even when you don't have any boots, what can the people of God do? Well, the church in Acts held all things in common by choice in order to meet the needs of the community. There's a recognition that, we, that all of us here have needs. And an insurgent church recognizes that that love of the brothers and sisters means that if one expresses a need, another fills it. It's an economy of love and self-sacrifice, the likes of which the world has not seen and the likes of which undermines the domination and exploitation that we see outside of our walls. And, 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 and when we're consistently other-centered, it also keeps domination and exploitation from getting in here. And that's one of the, it's, 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 it's one of the most dangerous things for us to guard against. It means that we've got to organize to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in our communities. It means that we've got to marshal our gifts and resources to do that work. Because we've got the base assumption, like, we're a bunch of needy people. And what about family? It's, it's, it's within, like, the smallest units that the tendencies to dominate and exploit find their greatest opportunity. 
So, 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 so in your friendships, you're, you're, you're going to be tempted to use your friends to get what you want. That's called exploitation. In, in your marriages, you're going to be tempted not just to use your spouse to get what you want, but to actively manipulate them to get what you want. Domination and exploitation. You're going to be tempted to see your children as, as distractions, as obstacles to you living your best life, as opposed to gifts from the Lord whom you've been called to steward. In a revolutionary community, those needs are public and common. That is, we all know that we all have these needs. There is no need for you to hide the struggles that you have with parenting. There's no need for you to hide the struggles that you're having in your marriage. You have a community of people who have been called to love you. We also know, however, that the, that, the, that, that the Father and the Son have called us to love one another, and they've sent the Holy Spirit in order that we might actually do it. It's why the Son of God died. It's why he was raised. It's why he prays this prayer. It's because holy love isn't just a discreet action. It's a habit. And habits need to be shaped and repeated and cultivated. But you can only join this insurgency if you're free from the world. You can only join with Christ in his ministry of teaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and curing the sick if you've been called out and sent in. And there's one thing I want for you, dear brother or dear sister, and it is for you to be free from the world. The issue is not that we sin on occasion or that we just kind of give in to particular temptations. Padilla, oh, this is, this is, this is another great quote for him, where he talks about like what it, what it means for us to be enslaved to the world. He, he, he summarizes it this way. He says, we are imprisoned within a closed system of rebellion against God, a system that conditions us to absolutize the relative and relativize the absolute. I'm going to talk about that in a second. A system whose mechanism of self-sufficiency deprives us of eternal life and subjects us to the judgment of God. We absolutize the relative. That is, we see these, we see these cultural distinctions and we make them holy. We set them apart and say, this is what God wants for us. When really, no, this is just what I want for me. And this is what I and the, and, the, and the community that I grew up in want for me. But, the, but, 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 but this tendency that we have to absolutize the relative, but also to relativize the absolute. So we see the commands of God and we're like, eh, doesn't really matter. Let's push that off to the side because it's too uncomfortable. This is, what the, this is how the world encourages us to think. And all that manifests itself in what, in what then Padilla says is self-sufficiency. This, this understanding that the goal is for me to be able to make it on my own. And that's just deeply contrary to the gospel, brothers and sisters. The gospel constantly places before us our need of one another. But it shows us our need of one another, and then also shows us, hey, the Lord has called the community to actually fulfill those needs. And so, brothers and sisters, when we're, when we're in a world that tells us that our cultural expressions are holy and that the commands of God are optional, we have a different story to tell. In a world that tells us that, that the goal is self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-worship, we have a different story to tell. In a world that tells us that to get ahead, we've got to trample folks along the way, we have a different story to tell. And in a world that tells us, that, 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 that tells us to hate and destroy our enemies, we have a different story to tell. Because our story is of a king who defeated his enemies by dying. And if we're to go the way of the cross... It means that we win through sacrifice, knowing that sacrifice does not end in loss. No, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, 
The way of the cross leads to victory. Let's pray.